You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for June 19th, 2022, the second Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. So I, I, like all of you, was shocked and heartbroken by the news of the shooting at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Vestavia, Alabama on Thursday evening. Vestavia, a, um, a, a suburb of Birmingham. I'm, I was heartbroken by the death of three parishioners there who were gathering for a potluck at what seems to be the equivalent of what we call here the wisdom circle at St. Mark's. One of them who died was in their 70s, the other two in their 80s. One of them died as his wife of 60 years cradled him in her arms and consoled him according to a press statement from their daughter. I mourned this week the brokenness in the heart of Robert Smith, the gunman, whatever it was within him that allowed him to commit such acts of inhumanity. I'm wearied, I was wearied, I'm still wearied, I'm sure that you are too, by another senseless act of gun violence so soon on the heels of 10 dead in Buffalo, 21 dead, 19 children in Uvalde, and so close to the seven-year anniversary of the shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. But I was consoled this week, and I wanted to share my consolation with you. I was consoled as I was after the shooting at Mother Emanuel seven years ago by the witness of the people of St. Stephen's and of the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama to the power of Jesus even in this valley of the shadow of death. I read in an article which Reverend Elizabeth shared with several of us on the staff that Friday morning one of the associate rectors at St. Stephen's, Dr. Rebecca Bridges, so the equivalent their, their version, as it were, of me and Reverend Elizabeth. Uh, Dr. Bridges offered prayers for the parish and for the world on Friday on Facebook Live. And the article said that Dr. Bridges prayed not only for the victims and the church members who witnessed the shooting, but also for the person who perpetrated the shooting. We pray that you, God, will work in that person's heart, Bridges said, and we pray that you will help us to forgive. That's nothing short of miraculous. As the article said further that she prayed that elected officials in Washington and Alabama will see what has happened at St. Stephen's and Uvalde and Buffalo and in so many other places, and their hearts will be changed, their minds will be opened, and that our culture will change, and that our laws will change in ways that will protect all of us. I'm glad to say amen to all of that, and not just because it expresses the desires that have been aching in my heart these last, well, years. Ever since, for me, as a, um, as a teenager, as I watched the tragedy at Columbine unfurl on my television screen, but I'm glad to say amen to it because Dr. Bridges did so in prayer to the Most High, and that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. George Herbert, the great English and Anglican poet, called prayer reversed thunder, (laughs) but I think we are more 
likely to call prayer a light drizzle, or if we're really irreligious, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Now, some of you in this congregation are in marketing, and some of you are really good at it. And I've been saying this at the 8 o'clock and at the 9 o'clock before you, and I'm telling you, prayer needs a new marketing campaign, okay? It needs rebranding, because prayer's reputation is in trouble in the United States, not least because of how prayer has been inserted into the discourse around gun violence. A CNN article published a few months after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in February 2018 discussed the growing cynicism with the phrase, you know it, I know it, thoughts and prayers. And in the article it mentioned a meme which circulated on social media shortly after the Parkland shooting. It's a dump truck with thoughts and prayers painted on the side and underneath the picture it says your first truckload of thoughts and prayers has just arrived. Oof. Now I, I have to say I after years of inaction after justified frustration with the lack of bipartisan cooperation at the federal level in addressing gun violence and its root causes I cannot blame in fact I sympathize with whoever it was who made that meme not to mention the people who retweeted it, reposted it, and so on. I can understand the desire of people to impugn thoughts and prayers as nothing more than an escape hatch from political and social responsibility, given that it has been such. But I am concerned when we talk about prayer this way. I'm concerned especially because I hear it more and more commonly among Christians. Because if God is real, if God is real, then prayer is the most world-altering, invaluable, unbelievable activity available to mortal creatures. And it's especially precious to us when we're at our wit's end, as I think so many of us are. Our lesson today from Luke, as we observed in our podcast this week, Reverend Elizabeth, Father Peters, and my podcast, uh, should be, it really should be a scene from a Spielberg movie. It's cinematic. It's, it's incredible. It needs John Williams to write the score. It needs some special effects like in Indiana Jones. There's a man who's possessed by not just one demon, but a legion of demons, Luke says, and he's been terrorizing his town, and he's been terrorizing himself. And they've, the townspeople have keep, kept this guy under lock and key, both to protect themselves and I think to protect him from himself. And Jesus commands the demons, prays for the demons to leave this man. This is a story about the power of prayer and about the power of God. And we don't get the prayer here. I don't know if it was, Luke doesn't tell us that the prayer was verbal or not, if he spoke it out loud or just in the quietude of his heart. But whatever happened, it says that he had commanded the demons to come out and that's where we get the demons' response to this, to Jesus. That's how the story gets going. The demons are going to leave this man. They have no choice. That's good news. Uh, they're compelled not just by his authority as the Son of God, but by the torment which his mere presence to them seems to cause them. They seem to be in pain just because they're close to his unbelievable holiness. And then you get the scene where the demons possess the pigs, right? So the demons beg not to be sent by Jesus back into the abyss. Jesus says, okay, if you really want to go into the pigs, fine. Sorry to the swine herders. I hope they had some insurance. Um, 
Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, the, the pigs hurl themselves off the cliff into a lake. It's an incredibly violent scene. Incredibly violent. It's, it's shocking. Uh, it's vivid. It's powerful. It speaks to God's power in Christ. Power which I, which I think many of us crave God to put on display now. We wish that God would act this way now and not just then. That God would cast out some demons and some people say that God only did this back in the day, that the era of miracles is over. But I, I have to say I politely, or not so politely, disagree. Um, I think that misunderstands what a miracle was then and what a miracle is now. A miracle is just the world being what God wants it to be. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is every dimension of the world, the natural world, the spiritual world, the world of human decision and freedom, all of creation coming into perfect alignment with God's will, perfectly expressing his will for the world, which is love and life and light. Miracles are miraculous to us. They're unexpected because the world doesn't always do as God wants it to. But what we see happening around Jesus, who is God as well as man, is the world coming into that alignment over and over and over again just because, it seems to be because of the sheer intensity of God's proximity to that world now that God is a human being walking around in it. So, so wherever Jesus goes, wherever God in the flesh goes, the world is transformed around him. The people who are around him are healed. Demons flee his presence. It's rather like metal shards are more readily drawn to a magnet the closer that you put the magnet to them. It's something about God being so close that transforms the world around Jesus into the world God wants it to be. Now the world doesn't always do as God wants it to. It's always been a great puzzle why Jesus, why <laughs> Jesus doesn't snap his fingers and heal all of the world's cancers, right? Instead, it's the people who are around him, as I said. The world doesn't always do as God wants it to. And this doesn't just go for human beings, but for the natural world, too. The world of earthquakes and heart attacks and cancers. This isn't just about our no to God. It's about the world, all the creation's no to God. You see, I think God has bound himself or or limited himself by committing himself to preserving the integrity and the freedom of the world he created. Preserving the integrity even of creation's ability to say no to him. And this means that while a great many things happen because God makes them to, as it were, directly or determines them in the language of philosophers, like my wife Jewel behind me. A great many things happen because God determines them to, but a great many things happen just because they happen and God allows or permits them to. In other words, as a creator, God doesn't always get all of what God wants. Because what God wants first is a free world. Free creatures living in a dense universe. And free creatures in a dense universe don't always live in love. 
which is also what God wants. But those two desires, right, for a world of love and a world of freedom, conflict with one another. And God opts for the free world as a creator. But Christians don't just worship an abstract higher power who's pulling a whole lot of strings. Christians worship the God of Jesus Christ, a God who's not just a creator, but a redeemer. And the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, is how God gets all of what God wants. That's the story of the scriptures, of God's covenant with Israel, of the incarnation, of Jesus' death and resurrection, of his promised consummation of all creation and glory. This is the way that God devises ingeniously to get all of what God wants, to get a world that is free to love or to hate, but which will in the end choose freely to love in harmony and beauty all the way down, all the way even down to the atoms. Because in Jesus, God chases us, rebellious creatures, into our rebellion. Jesus chases us even into the abyss to which the demons do not want to go in our story. Chases us even into hell so that every no we say to him is outrun by his yes to us. That's the rest of this morning's story. That's the part of it that Luke didn't write down in this particular chapter because it's the overall story of what's happening in the whole gospel. Jesus gives the demons permission to enter into the herd of swine and then watches as they rush off headlong, suicidally off the cliff into the lake. But as it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, when Jesus eventually was put to death in the flesh, as 1 Peter puts it, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. You might not have known that was in your Bible, but it, but it is. 1 Peter chapter 3, went to make a proclamation to the spirits in prison, meaning that he went into hell. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, which we say at baptism, in the context of the baptismal covenant, we say he descended into hell. Because 1 Peter 3 suggests this, which is to say Jesus followed the demons possessing the pigs off the cliff. Followed them off the cliff ran ahead of them, actually, into the abyss that they're too afraid to go back to so that his magnetism could shine even in that impenetrable and terrible darkness. That's the religion. That's the good news, right? That no matter how dark your life might be, no matter how dark the world might be, God has already shown up there. And prayer is an act by which we enter into the spirit by which Jesus does so. So Jesus, when he descends into hell, it remains connected to the one he called Father by the Holy Spirit. Kind of like a bungee cord, okay? It allows Jesus to plummet the depths of the abyss, but still maintain the life-giving relationship that he has with the one he calls Father. And we discover in prayer that exact same bungee cord, okay? We discover the spirit. When we pray, many of us, we, you know, there are lots of ways to pray. One of the ways to pray, one of the ways we teach our children to pray is to close our eyes, right? And we do that for a reason. It's, it's as though in prayer we're entering, we're entering into our innermost self. We're shutting off the world for a moment, and we are going deep into our souls, into whatever place it is where we are most truly ourselves. And we discover living there the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And our prayer, all of it, issues from the prayer of the Spirit inside of us. God is already in a conversation, as it were, with God. 
and we overhear it, latch onto it, and continue it. This is what St. Paul means when he says that we do not know how to pray as we ought in Romans, but the Spirit prays within us with sighs too deep for words. And that sighing is the beginning of all prayer, whether we use words or we don't. When we enter into the interior room where the Spirit of dwells, we naturally align our hearts with God and with God's will, which means that we are made into a tiny miracle or a not-so-tiny one, as it were. We're drawn to Him like a magnet because we come close to Him. The Gerasene demoniac was close to Him physically. We can come close to the Spirit of Christ spiritually when we pray. And we pray that the whole world, the whole creation would do the same thing. Every prayer is an elaboration of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's praying that all the world will come into that alignment. And drawing near to God in this way, bringing our bit of the world that we are into alignment with God's will, praying that other parts of the world will come into alignment with God's will, I got to tell you, it makes a difference. It really does. It makes a difference first to us who pray. That's the first thing it does. God uses our prayer to change us. But God answers prayer by rendering other parts of the world more prayerful, as it were, by rendering them more transparent to more aligned with Him. Now, if we pray for God to give us wings so we can fly, well, I've got to tell you, it's probably unlikely to be answered because we're not birds, okay? And God seems to really like for things to accord with their natures, whatever it is that God has created them to be. But it is possible. I've seen it, and I've experienced it. And you all have too, because I know some of your stories. It's just we're Episcopalians, and that means that we're reticent. We're kind of shy about doing as Jesus told the Gerasene demoniac to do, which is to tell each other what God has done for us. But if we did tell each other what God has done for us, I promise you, we would learn from the people sitting next to you that God does move the needle of nature by prayer. God speeds recoveries from illnesses and reverses debilitating conditions you never thought were possible to be reversed. God moves hearts which we never thought could be moved, reconciles people who never thought they could be reconciled, and weaves together unknowably complex situations, chances, opportunities for our good. These are all cases when the natural and the human worlds are aligned perfectly with God, so that God's life The life that we see in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead surges up through a web of a complex and dense world. These are moments when the world is really as God wants it to be. And asking that there would be more of them is a good thing. My point is that, as Lord Tennyson said in Idols of the King, More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And I really believe that. It doesn't mean that when our prayers aren't answered that we've not prayed hard enough or that we're not good enough or God doesn't love us enough. It just means that there's some part of creation that is still saying no to God. Physical, spiritual. Some part of creation is still saying no But praying that creation would say yes is good. And we should pray after shootings. We should. We should pray after shootings. Dr. Bridges was right to. We should pray after shootings. We should pray for the change of the hearts and the minds of our leaders. We should 
pray for all of our hearts and minds and for our sin-sick culture. It's not Pollyanna nonsense. It's really not. It's of the essence of what Christians ought to be about. And we should pray for the sick and for the hopeless and the despondent and the dead and the sinful, particularly ourselves. Because, to be frank, we believe in God. And God is real. Surprise is God's first language. And prayer is the means by which we learn to speak it. My prayer for all of us in these days is that we would never despair of it. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.